All right, so we're moving into chapter 5 of Revelation. That's kind of exciting, a new chapter. Chapter 4, we saw the rapture of the church where John hears the trumpet sound from heaven, the, the loud voice saying, come up here, symbolizing the rapture of the church. We saw the 24 elders there before the throne casting their crowns at the feet of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God the Father on the throne, Jesus seated at his right hand. And believe it or not, we're going to try to cover nine verses this morning. I think we'll be able to do it, actually. I'm going to begin reading Revelation 5, verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much. This is John, of course, speaking. Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders, one of the 24 elders, said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, with a big L, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Let's pray. Father God, we just pray as we enter in now to chapter 5, begin to look at this, that you would open our understanding. Uh, we know there's a lot of imagery and symbolism in this book of Revelation. So we just ask you to give us insight and uh, help us to learn and to grow and to have a greater and deeper understanding of what's coming in the near future, what we're going to be seeing, what we're going to be experiencing. And for us, a great deal of that will be from the upper level, the upper deck, as we are raptured, taken out of here, and then watch the events of the tribulation unfold. So we ask you to bless this time of study now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll. So the Father's on the throne, Jesus is at the right hand, and notice the scroll that the Father is holding is in his right hand, so he's preparing to hand it off to the Son, to Jesus. Romans 8.34, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So 
I've always found this to be extremely comforting and encouraging that not only is Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, He is interceding for us. He's making intercession for us before the Father day and night. Ephesians 1.19, what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. And so that's where Jesus is right now. We know the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and that gives us direct, constant connection with our Father in heaven, with His Son, Jesus Christ. And at some given point in time, in the not-too-distant future, the Father is going to turn to the Son, and He's going to tell Him, it's time to bring your people home. And that's when we will have that Shout from heaven, the sound of the trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we which remain alive on the earth will be caught up to meet them in the air, and so forth. But at this point, the church has already been raptured, caught up, and John is now witnessing this scenario of the scroll in the Father's hand. He's getting ready to hand it off to the Lamb, to Jesus. It says, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And we're going to see as we go forward in this study of Revelation, the first four seals, as they are opened, will unleash what we know as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the white, red, black, and pale horses. And we'll learn more about those in chapter 6. The fifth seal relates to the soul's of the Christian martyrs, those that after the rapture come to Christ and then as a result, for the most part, will be martyred. They, they will have to forfeit their lives in order to be followers of Christ. They will either take the mark of the beast or you're executed. So the fifth seal relates to the souls of the Christian martyrs. The sixth unleashes a great earthquake, and all of this is in chapter 6. And then the seventh seal, chapter 8, gives way to the seven angels with seven trumpets. So that's what we're looking forward to in the next several chapters here. It begins with this scroll with the seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? So this, uh, the proclamation of this strong angel, whoever this angel is, we may have some speculation on that later on, but this indicates that the time has come after the rapture to open the scroll, loose the seals, and trigger the events of the tribulation, also known as the 70th week of Daniel from Daniel 9.27. We might possibly next week look at that passage in Daniel, Daniel's 70 weeks, prophecy concerning Israel. And as you've heard me say a number of times, Israel is the key to understanding Bible prophecy. And so for those who want to discredit or discount Israel and embrace what is known as replacement theology, replacement theology teaches that we as the church have replaced Israel. They are no longer relevant. And in fact, a larger percentage of 
churches today do embrace replacement theology, but there's a big problem with that because, as I shared with you perhaps last week or the week before, the two purposes for the tribulation are, one, to pour out God's wrath, His judgment on an unbelieving world, and secondly, to complete the restoration of Israel. Not geographical Israel, not political Israel, but spiritual Israel, the faithful remnant of God's chosen people who will ultimately embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So if you embrace this theology that Israel is no longer relevant, then everything falls apart because they really are the focal point. And one of the key signs of the last days would be the restoration of the nation of Israel, which took place in 1948. So that really narrows down the, the time frame. There have been generation after generation of Christians who, as they have experienced tumultuous times and tyrannical rulers, you know, there were undoubtedly a large number of people uh, back in the 1930s and 40s that thought Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist. And you know what? He was. Because the Bible talks about the spirit of Antichrist, and there have been rulers down through human history who have operated in the spirit of Antichrist, but at a given point in time, the Antichrist will rise up. I was just sharing, Georgie and I had an opportunity to spend some time with her brother, came down from Denver for Thanksgiving, and we were talking about these things and looked over at Revelation 13, the mark of the beast, and what triggers the worldwide acceptance of the beast, the Antichrist, the one world ruler, is that he receives a fatal head wound, and then he recovers. So even as he is known as the Antichrist, a false Christ, one of the things that will cause people to flock to him and accept him as their savior is this counterfeit resurrection that will occur. So we might take a look even next week, perhaps, at Daniel chapter 9. Verse 3. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And so this is this terminology, in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth, no human or angelic being is going to be found worthy to open the scroll. The question is, why was no one able to open the scroll or to look at it? Verse 4, John says, I wept much. Because no one was found worthy. Again, no human or angelic being. He's weeping because he longed in his heart to see the fulfillment and completion of God's eternal plan for the human race and the establishment of his eternal kingdom. How did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? On earth as it is in heaven, right? Let's look at the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9. In this manner, therefore, pray. Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray. And again, we know sometimes we do pray this prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. It's not supposed to be just something that we re repeat monotonously by rote. It's really a model for the elements of, of a good prayer. In this manner, therefore, pray, says Jesus, our Father in heaven. So we pray to the one who controls everything, the one who's in charge. 
and he is our father. It's, not, it's a father-son, father-daughter relationship. Hallowed be your name. And so it's good to incorporate within our prayers a worshipful attitude, an attitude of praise and thanksgiving. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Paul says to bring everything to God in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. You know how it is for those of us who are earthly parents. If all we ever hear from our kids is a bunch of whining and complaining, it gets a little old, doesn't it? So it's nice to hear some positive things. And so as we go before God with our prayers, our requests, it's really a good idea, and He's totally deserving that we should perhaps even start our prayers with thanksgiving, praise for all that He's done for us, all that He's given us, and especially for sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. So, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this is really key as it relates to our study here in Revelation. And the idea that John was weeping because there didn't seem to be anyone qualified uh, to look at this scroll, to open the seals, because Jesus taught John and the other disciples to pray, your kingdom come. At the time, the disciples were living under Roman rule. And down through history, everybody's lived under some type of earthly rule. And we've certainly been focused on that as of late with this most recent election, deciding who is going to rule over us, if you will. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this can ultimately only be accomplished when Christ returns and sets up his millennial kingdom here on the earth. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the Lord's Prayer actually is a second coming kind of a prayer because in the midst of this prayer, he's teaching us. And again, there are those who say, well, quit focusing on this, the return of Christ. Just live life day by day. Focus on the here and now. Try to be a better person, blah, blah, blah. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are to be constantly focused on the return of Christ. We should be all about desiring for Him to come again, to establish His kingdom here on the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Absolutely, perfectly, 100% all the time, right? And so that's what we're praying, and that can only happen when Christ returns. Give us this day our daily bread. And that's not just about food, folks. Our daily bread is everything that we need mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. Give us that which we need, Father, to basically get through this day. One day at a time. Just like the children of Israel in the wilderness when God would rain down the manna. Did you know the, the word manna means what is it? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> Looks good, tastes good, but they weren't allowed to store it up. They had to, to receive it daily from God. And there was a lesson there for them and for us that we need to seek God daily as our source of sustenance, whether it be mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, a daily dependence upon God. Sadly, I think sometimes people live their lives like this. Well, Lord, 
If I need you, I'll give you a call, give you a holler. In the meantime, I've got it under control, God, which is a fallacy. None of us really have it under control unless we are submitted to God and allowing Him to be in control of our lives. Forgive us our debts or our trespasses as we forgive our debtors. And that's another interesting thing, isn't it? If we want to walk in God's forgiveness, we need to be those who are quick to forgive. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so if we have a heart attitude of unforgiveness, that's going to hinder our relationship with God. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So my plan wasn't to do an in-depth study of the Lord's Prayer, but it was simply to make this point John is weeping here because he very much desires, he's now in heaven, he is up there with the elders, with the cherubim, he's witnessing this scene in heaven, but he's desiring to see the fulfillment and the completion of God's plan, which ultimately would be that the saints would return with Christ to the earth to establish Jesus' millennial kingdom here on this planet, and in order for that to happen, this scroll has got to be opened up. These things have to be unleashed in order to bring about the fulfillment of God's plan. Verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. It's okay, John. It's all good. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll. We all know who this is, right? The Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, the Root of David. Interesting, the Root of David. Now, wait a minute. Now, in natural earthly terms, David was born before, about a thousand years before Jesus. But Jesus is actually the Root of David because Jesus is the great I Am. He has always existed. So David's not his Root. He's David's Root. That's a cool thing. He has prevailed to open the scroll. The New American Standard Bible says he has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. The NIV says he has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So what does this mean? He's prevailed. He's overcome. He's triumphed. And therefore, he is qualified to open the scroll and its seven seals through his crucifixion. Dying on the cross for the sins of the world, his resurrection from the dead, the first fruits of all those to be raised from the dead. Why is he the first fruits? Because we know in the Old Testament there were resurrections. We know that Jesus raised several people from the dead during his time here on earth. Why is he the first fruits? Because Jesus is the first man, he is fully God yet fully man, to be raised from the dead never to die again. Those other people who were resurrected, the good news is you've been raised from the dead. The not so good news, you're still going to die because <laughs> you're still living in a mortal body. But Jesus rose from the dead in a glorified, immortal, imperishable, incorruptible body that you and I are going to receive. So he's the first fruits of all those to be raised from the dead once and for all, forever, for all eternity. And that's how he has overcome 
That's how he has triumphed. That's how he has prevailed, making him the only one qualified to open the scroll and loose the seals. And by the way, until we're in heaven, Jesus is not going to unleash the events of the tribulation. There are some, you know, if you search the internet, you'll find any number of self-proclaimed Bible scholars who would tell you that we're already in the tribulation. Well, sometimes it might feel like it, but I guarantee you, whatever we're experiencing right now here on planet Earth pales in comparison to what is coming. And there are those, actually, there's even one branch of theology that would tell you we're already in the millennium. If this is it, it stinks. If this is the millennium, I'm greatly and severely disappointed. But I firmly believe, and I think the scriptures back me up on this, that these scroll, these seals will not be opened. These things will not be unleashed until we are in heaven, having been raptured out of here. Verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. So again, confirming what I just said, that what's qualified Jesus to open the scroll is his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. In verse 5, we saw Jesus revealed as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Here he's revealed as the lamb that had been slain. John 1.29 the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said in front of the people, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Revelation 13, 8, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, the beast, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. That was God's plan from the beginning. Because God, being God, knowing all things, God dwelling outside the realm of space and time, God dwelling within the realm of eternity, knew from the beginning of human history what would take place, what must take place. And so from God's perspective, God already saw Jesus as the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. It was God himself in the person of Jesus, the lamb, who died for the sins of the world. And of course, there could be no other qualified to judge the world other than he who died to save this world. Having seven horns, these represent the authority and strength of a ruler. And it also speaks of Jesus' deity. Remember again that number seven being the number of completion, fulfillment, perfection. Horns symbolize power and authority. So Jesus is the absolute embodiment of the fullness wisdom, and power of the Godhead. That's how we refer to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the Godhead. And, have, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. As the second person of the Trinity, Jesus possesses all the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2.9, For in Him, Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, in other words, in human form. Verse 7, 
Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So Jesus was the only one in all of creation found worthy. And of course, for us, this is yet a future event, but in God's perspective, it's all right now. Only one found worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of the Father, so he will personally oversee the fulfillment and completion of all things pertaining to God's dealings with the human race and the establishment of God's eternal kingdom. So, as the only one found worthy to open the scroll, to remove the seals one at a time, Jesus is going to personally oversee all of the events of the tribulation leading up to the second coming when we will come back with him to rule over this earth. So verse 8, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the 24 elders, I guess this is where some people get this idea that, you know, heaven is all about sitting on a cloud playing a harp. It's not like that, but these elders do have these instruments. It's an instrument of ten strings played with a key or a pick. So just kind of like what we do up here on Sundays. Each having a harp, the golden bowls of incense, and these bowls were more like, actually more like saucers, but they had the prayers of the saints. And to God, the prayers of his people are like a sweet, fragrant incense. And you know, it's probably something that you and I will struggle with. I don't know about you, but I do sometimes. Sometimes you go to pray and you, you kind of feel like, who am I to talk to God? Am I even worthy? Do I, I mean, you know, kind of embarrassed a little bit to bother him, you know what I mean? You ever feel like that? Because he's so awesome, he's so amazing, and it's like sometimes you feel like you're coming back with the same stuff over and over again. It's like, Man, that's okay because God wants us to approach Him in humility. But we can also have confidence, come boldly before His throne of grace, seeking help in our time of need. But perhaps we should remind ourselves more often that our prayers are like a sweet, fragrant incense to God. He loves to hear from us. And again, especially as we pepper and season our prayers with praise, worship, thanksgiving, adoration. Not just come all the time like little whining complainers, but coming with thanksgiving, praising Him, honoring Him, and then very sincerely pouring our hearts out to Him, bringing our requests, our petitions, our intercessions. And notice, they fell down before the Lamb. Now, if Jesus isn't God, and again, there are those in the theological spectrum that would try to make that argument, and as you've heard me say before, it's kind of a, a hallmark of virtually every cult group, every false religion, every false belief system there's almost complete uniformity in this regard. They deny the deity of Christ. 
And that's, that's the devil's doing. When Paul warned Timothy about doctrines of demons, he wasn't talking about Satanism and witchcraft. I mean, that's obvious on its face, right? Doctrines of demons are doctrines that filter into the church, into the belief system of people who identify as Christians, but undermine the foundations of our faith. If Christ is not God, then it all falls apart. But notice when they fall down before the Lamb, there's no rebuke, is there? We don't hear the Father saying, wait a minute, don't bow down before Him. I'm God. He's just my Son. No. It's perfectly acceptable for them to bow down before the Lamb because the Lamb is God. And so we see in verse 9, they sang a new song. Fresh inspiration inspired by the significance of the moment. And that was one of the big significant signs of true revival that I witnessed in my lifetime with what we call the Jesus movement. Now we have just a massive amount of contemporary what is referred to as praise and worship music. I'll be honest with you, a lot of it is very self-indulgent. A lot of it is very performance-oriented. A lot of it really isn't that conducive to congregational worship. It's more like a performance. Have you noticed that? When the Jesus movement broke out in the late 60s and early 70s, there was a beauty, a simplicity. There was a whole new birth of praise and worship music that had departed from the traditional hymns of the church. And there's nothing wrong with those hymns, but without an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, without a a fresh outpouring from God, and just singing those songs out of a hardcover book over and over again, week after week, with little feeling or emotion or thought, worship had become extremely stale in most churches. But there was a new song that was birthed out of that movement. And as I've told you before, at the very core, at the very heart of the Jesus movement was a return to the Word of God. Not just preachers getting up and maybe reading one Bible verse and then telling a series of anecdotes and stories. Do you remember those days? And in a lot of places, that's still what happens. Not really expository teaching, not really going through the Scriptures, teaching the Scriptures, learning the Word of God, just preaching, no teaching, telling stories. And so the Jesus movement was characterized by a return to a more serious exploration of God's Word, but it was also characterized by a genuine outpouring of the Spirit in terms of a new song, fresh, heartfelt, sincere worship. And Jesus told the woman at the well, the time is coming and is now here when those who worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth. And so we see that happening here in the throne room in heaven as as the elders, the cherubim, everybody there witnessing 
what's taking place. The handing off of the scroll from the father to the son to the lamb. The result is they break out in a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Psalms 98, 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. Psalms 144, 9. I will sing a new song to you, O God, on a harp of ten strings. There it is again. I will sing praises to you. I normally only play a six string. I might have to... I got to get up to speed, man. I want to be ready to jam when I get to heaven. Now, I can play a 12-string. That might even be better than a 10-string. But notice what they're saying as they fall down before him and they break out in a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And again, we've already seen this, but we can ask this question one more time. Why is he worthy to open to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. Boy, from the natural worldly perspective, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, does it? You're worthy to open the scroll because you got killed? But what makes Jesus worthy to open the scroll and begin the process of pouring out judgments upon the earth is the fact that he's the one, the only one, and all of creation, think about this. I think sometimes we don't think about it enough. Maybe we take it for granted. He's the only one in all of creation to offer himself up as the sacrifice for the sins of mankind. That's why he's worthy. And we've had a lot of brave men and women down through the centuries who've put their lives on the line and in many cases sacrificed their lives for this nation and that's another reason why what's going on right now is of such great significance. And to see so many people disrespecting our military, our law enforcement. What's happening now, as I've said over and over again, it's not political, it's spiritual warfare. And it runs so deep. And if we don't fight the battle, no one else will. You were slain, and he's also qualified because he has redeemed us to God. You've redeemed us to God by your blood, they said. Redeemed, folks, means to be delivered from bondage, distress, penalty, liability, or from the possession of another. In this case, before we were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we were the property of, of Satan. But now we're the property of Jesus, like Bob Dylan sang a long time ago. Delivered from bondage, distress, penalty, liability, or from the possession of another by paying an equivalent. Jesus paid the price. He redeemed us. The price was his own life, his own blood. Ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, Satan has held the human race hostage. Jesus paid the ransom. That's typically how you rescue a hostage. You pay a ransom 
for their release. Jesus paid the ransom for our sins with his own blood. Have redeemed us, they said. Who's us? In this case, it's the 24 elders who represent the body of Christ in heaven. Out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. Once again, we're reminded, John 3.16, God so loved certain ethnic groups. No. God so loved the rich and famous. God so loved the world. And it's amazing that all those who claim to be so much in favor of equality and social justice and, uh, you know, uh, are against any kind of oppression or suppression, discrimination. They don't, sure don't love Jesus, who is the most all-inclusive one who ever walked this planet. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so... Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah. In fact, we know that initially the Jews as a nation on the whole rejected him. But praise God, every day more and more Jewish people are coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. God is in the process of restoring his people even as we speak. He's not just the Jewish Messiah. He's not just the white European Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. By the way, did you hear where uh, on Thursday um, Google proclaimed unthanksgiving? There are alternative search engines. You might want to look into one of those. Remember, I told you quite a while back about Duck, Duck, Go? Yeah, they proclaimed unthanksgiving. Most people don't even realize the purpose of thanksgiving is not to thank the turkey. It's not even to thank mom and dad who go out and work hard to put food on the table, although that can certainly be part of it and should be probably. Thanks to those who make this meal possible, but more than anyone else, thanksgiving is supposed to be about thanking God. Of course, that's kind of tough for those who choose not to believe in him, isn't it? God is not a racist. There'll be no racism in heaven or in the millennial kingdom of Christ. So everything that people are crying out for, on the one hand, they're full of hypocrisy anyway. It's all a crock. <laughs> I was just thinking about Isaac Airfreight, that Christian comedy group I told you about from the 80s. Isaac Airfreight, 70s and 80s. And they did that, uh, let's make a deal, Monty Lucifer, that whole thing. And so he wins a crock pot. A crock? A crock? We just had crock last week. Anyway, it popped into my mind just now. I'm trying to think of all the different things you could find in a crock. And as I've told you many times, really, at the end of the day, you can't have racism because there's only one race, the human race. Now, we can have discrimination, we can have prejudice, we can have bias, one ethnic group against another, but racism is a fallacy because we're all, we all came from Adam and Eve. 
And so God so loved the world. Jesus loves the world. God is not a racist. And no believer should be a racist. Praise God for the Lamb who was slain from the foundations of the earth. Let's stand. Father God, thank you for sending Jesus Christ, your one and only Son, who is also God. Father, we thank you for making yourself known to us as the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the Lamb who was slain from the foundations of the world. Lord, you had a plan from the get-go. You knew that we would fall. You knew that we would fail. But that wasn't acceptable to you, Father, because you created us to have an eternal love relationship with you, to be part of your forever family. So in order to repair the damage that was done when Adam and Eve fell thousands of years ago in the Garden of Eden, when they gave in to the temptations of the flesh, the temptations of the evil one, you already had a plan set in motion to redeem us, to ransom us, to bring us out of the darkness into the light, to bring us from death into life. Lord, we are excited for what lies ahead in these coming days, weeks, months, years. And Lord, we could be with you at any moment. We know that. The rapture could occur at any moment. And it's important that we be watching, waiting, ready to be caught up to meet you in the air, Lord. We ask that you would strengthen us, empower us, enable us to stand firm in these last days, to not give way to fear, to not give way to doubt, to not give way to deception, but to keep our hearts and minds rooted and grounded, planted firmly in the truth of your word and in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, I would pray for anyone here this morning or anybody watching via the internet, YouTube, whatever it might be. Lord, anyone who does not have an assurance of salvation, they're not really certain, they're not really sure where they would go if today were their last day on earth. Would they be in heaven? Would they be somewhere else? I pray that even now they might make a commitment a personal profession of faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Father. Please give each and every one of those in that category the gift of faith and the gift of repentance, that they might confess their sins before you and be washed in the blood of the Lamb, renewed, regenerated, born again, filled with the Holy Spirit. And Father, for those who do have that assurance of salvation, that firm belief in a, in a salvation that is ours in and through Jesus Christ. Help us to just continue running that race that you've set before us, Father, until that time when we see you face to face. And now while everybody's heads are bowed, eyes are closed, raise your hand this morning if you need prayer. I'd like to pray for you. See quite a few across the room. The Lord knows. Thank you. You can put them down again. 
Father God, I lift each one of these up to you. You know each one. You know their hearts and their minds. And that's what really counts. Father, we agree with them right now. Whatever their request is, you know. Lord, whether it's for a physical healing. And we've had a lot of those, Father. We want to thank you. There have been some that have been called home to be with you. And your word indicates that that truly is a promotion. But there are others, Father, that you're not ready to call home yet. You've got, still got a plan and a purpose for them here on the earth. And yet there may be struggles, physical struggles, health issues. We lift those up to you and we ask that you would pour out your healing oil upon each one, whether it be someone in this room or someone that's on their heart and on their mind. A friend, a neighbor, a loved one. Lord, even now, I believe that throughout this room, we, we are thinking of different ones that we are connected to in relationship with that need healing in their physical bodies. We pray that you would pour out that healing upon them. Lord, for others, it could be mental, emotional issues, struggles going on. We know, Father, that the battle really does take place in the mind. Jesus says, if we think it, we've done it. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We know that the enemy attacks us in the area of our thoughts. We ask that you would bring healing to those struggling with mental, emotional issues, spiritual issues, Lord, struggling in their walk with you, their relationship. Please encourage them today. Build them up. Strengthen them. Father, others are struggling financially. We're in a difficult time right now. We're in a pandemic. Many people have lost their jobs. We ask that you would just pour out blessings upon your people in the area of finance. Lord, we're not seeking for wealth, for riches, but just our daily bread. So I pray for each one who has a need in that area that you would provide for them as well. Lord, as we leave this place today, we pray that you would go with us, be with us, guide us, direct us, lead us, strengthen us, Lord. Help us to stand firm. Help us to keep looking up, for our redemption does draw near. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.